Welcome to Three Point Landing, where we talk about movies, comics, and video games. We're your hosts. I'm Misha. I'm Matthew. And here we go. We're here to talk about the movie The Joker. And today we're going to go in a little bit into the background of the character, give our thoughts on our favorite Jokers, and then we'll tell you what we think of the movie. Yeah, uh, Misha, you're uh, like, well, we're both big ass nerds, but you're the big like fan of like the Bat mythos, you know, Batman, all that stuff. I, I mean, I know it's cliche to talk about being a Batman fan in our uh, current pop culture saturated landscape, but that's definitely a character you and whose universe you know uh, and love. So tell me, like, what do you think of the Joker, like, as he's been represented so far in the media? Well, as far as the Joker goes, I mean, like, depending on what year we're talking about, he can be any number of things. I mean, he's like Batman, right? In that, um, depending on the decade, depending on the audience, depending on what's popular at the time, he could be funny, he could be silly, he could be scary, he could be a terrorist. Or in this case, he could just be a guy having a really bad day, like mm. in this movie. I mean, um, he's been around for, what, um, 79 years at this point. And there's no single villain more identified as being um, one of Batman's enemies than this guy. I mean, there's just something about the image of a guy who's just always smiling. There's just something sinister about that. I mean, um, look at that. La- um, last month, we had It. Right? I mean, there was another killer clown for you. And now we have another one in Joaquin Phoenix's version. You think they're going to ban clowns in America now? <laughs> I have no idea. But that was a thing for a while, wasn't it? There were um, police reporting random clown sightings. Yeah, yeah. And um, like kids were like, people were reporting like their kids being endangered by clowns and stuff like that. But anyway, uh, I like to stay back on topic with the Joker. Like, personally, like my reference. For the Joker, like most other people our age, would be um, the Jack Nicholson uh, version, like mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. from the 1989 Tim Burton Batman films. Yeah, that was great. I mean, I mean, essentially he was playing himself, but <laughs> he was clearly having a good time yeah. doing it, and yeah. such that he was uh, the guy who headlined the the 1989 Batman film. Am I right? Absolutely, but you know that's something that they had to do at the time because his name was what gave it credibility. In the same way that hiring hiring Marlon Brando for Superman did ten years prior, it's like because nobody thought that you could do a serious Batman movie after the '60s. They thought Batman had to be silly. It had to be Bam Pow, all these cartoon colors, all the silly, the the silly bat names. But um, yeah, Jack Nicholson. He helped legitimize that film. And um, yeah, Michael Keaton was pretty good too as Batman. <laughs> yeah, and, and the thing I like the most about Nicholson's take, which I think is very iconic, is like just how smarmy he is and how much of like how much of the character is kind of like already present before he turns into the Joker after falling into one of the many uh chemical vats that exist in Gotham that I know that are not you know, they would solve their crime problem in Bat in, in Gotham if they kept those vats closed. They just just put a lid on it. Just, just put a <laughs> lid on all the vats. And you know what? Another thing that Gotham has besides chemical vats is skylights. I mean, seriously, every fucking building has a skylight in that city. That leads directly to an open chemical vat. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. Oh, another good one. Another one of my favorite Jokers, of course, is Mark Hamill's Joker on Batman the Animated Series. That is just fantastic. I mean... Here was a guy who everybody knew as Luke Skywalker. He's like your favorite, you know, good guy, Jedi Knight and all that. 
And now he is just the scariest version of the Joker that you ever heard. I mean, seriously. Yeah, he's he's personally like, but like a lot of people, he is my favorite uh, Joker. Uh, I think uh, essential to how his performance works is the fact that he plays his laughter like a musical instrument. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a lot mm-hmm. of like, you know, I, I don't want to like try to do a hammer or embarrass myself <laughs> here, but, you know, some, sometimes he goes a little high and then he goes a little low <laughs> and, it's, and, and, and the laugh like follows with it. Yep, yep. And it's really, really like, it's a really compelling performance. One that has allowed him to play the character for I'd say nigh on twenty seven years. Yeah, he's he still plays him in like random DC animated movies, um, the occasional animated show. He was he he was the Joker in all those Arkham games. Yeah, and the the, the video games. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, the video games. He's uh, what I like about the video games and the cartoons and all these different Mark Hamill takes is that even if it's the same actor and even if he brings many of the same tools or or instruments to playing the character. They're actually all different versions of the character, you know. Like one, of the, like the one from the Batman is definitely from the Batman video games is definitely more murderous, more psychotic, right, more right. rated M for mature, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the one from the animated series is very Looney Tunesy. I guess you could say that, but I think given the right episode or treatment, the animated one could be just as murderous. Oh yeah, totally. I wasn't saying like Looney Tunes as a I wasn't denigrating like the performance or suggesting anything like it was anything less than it is. So much as I'm saying like his performance tradition really like, you know, speaks to that sort of like classical animated like quality. Oh, definitely, definitely. But I think what I like about the Joker, I mean, same as with Batman or even other long-lived characters like James Bond, <laughs> is that um, you can have completely different takes on the same character, and they'd all be com- they'd all be entirely valid mm-hmm. depending on where the audience is coming from. But something I've found is that when it comes to characters like that who've been around forever <laughs> and they have different takes, audiences or uh, fans rather, they tend to latch onto the first one that they ca- they came into contact with. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair, right? <clears throat> yeah, like I mean, you know, we're always we always have an intimate relationship with like the versions of you characters. have an intimate relationship with the Joker. Well, by intimate, I mean like <laughs> I mean you kid, you kid, but I really none mean, of my like, business, man. <laughs> no, but you kid, but I'm I'm talking about like how these characters can really like get in your head, right? Right. I mean, at the risk of sounding like a little Looney Tunesy myself, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, like. uh a lot of, I too, like, I, I don't consider myself as someone who has anarchic impulses or murderous impulses mm-hmm. or even like insane clown impulses. But a lot of the Joker's worldview as, as uh, communicated by both Jack Nicholson and Mark Hamill's versions of the characters really like get into my head. And maybe I'm only speaking for myself here, but because I spend a lot of time thinking about the psychology of characters, you know, it's, it's what I'm speaking to about having an intimate relationship with the characters, that your first point of contact with the Joker being this or that, you know, like, as far as I'm concerned, gets in your head. Well, seeing as, I mean, you actually studied psychology, right? So what what do you think? What makes him so popular and scary at the same time? Why are people drawn to something like this, to a character like this? I think uh, there's a lot of, uh, an offhanded way of answering your question is that a lot of people talk about how Batman represents like a child or a man trying to impose order on a world that makes no sense to him. Fair enough. One that robbed him of his parents, that 
you know, uh, created crime and criminality and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. um, conversely, as his his opposite, the Joker represents that impulse that we have, that sort of like dark secret we won't admit, in which maybe the world does not make sense. Maybe the world, you know, is unfair or unfeeling, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know. And I think a lot of people identify uh, with Joker that way. And psychologically speaking, they sometimes like take catharsis from seeing him inflict his 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 mayhem mayhem and his murderous impulses on that that world that he sees like if life is if if fate and life is random then why not just like have a laugh with it right and then here comes this guy in a leather cape who just wants to punch him in the face <laughs> <laughs> but um something i i personally liked about the joker something that i got from the comics was that they never committed to any specific origin for him. I absolutely adore that. And that is something that they nailed with Heath Ledger's in The Dark Knight. Oh, yeah. Where every time he would tell you about where he got his his scars, the story would be different depending who he was talking to. And that is, just, for me, that is absolutely the Joker. Because y- you don't know where he's coming from. He could All of those things could be true. All of those things could be false. Nobody really knows. And I think that contributes to that spirit of chaos that you mentioned in a, in a way. Yeah, no, I 100% uh, agree. Like, uh, I think what's really interesting about, um, about Heath Ledger's Joker, even though like people talk about it as very, as a very groundbreaking performance and it is, mm, I know, I'm yeah. not about to like deny that. Yeah. But I think, um, he, like you said, spoke to that part of the character that had gone underexplored. Mm-hmm. And the whole enigma aspect, I think, is also an interesting thing. I'm glad you mentioned that. Because mm. one of my favorite things about the Batman Arkham Asylum games yeah. is they talk about like, a sort of recurring theme that goes underneath Arkham Asylum and Arkham City, which is the idea of curing mental illness or curing, like, like everybody's so convinced that they're going to be the one guy or one person who's going to figure out the Joker and treat him and cure him and become celebrities out of it. Uh, and oh. I love those that bit of Joker where he's like, all right, he's going to let you in closer and closer mm-hmm, and closer. Mm-hmm. And just when you think you've gained his trust, right. he's actually like drawn you into his web. He's very Hannibal Lecter. That's exactly where Harley Quinn came from. She was one of the doctors who was treating him. She thought that she would end up writing some kind of an expose or a tell-all book. Next thing she knows, she's head over heels for the guy. When he couldn't give... You know, he couldn't give a rat's ass about her. Well, depending on the time of day. You know, he just treats her like garbage. But she loves him anyway. Mm-mm. Okay. You want to go talking about the movie? I, I, I do. I mean, like, one of the things I wanted to... What I really liked about the movie is that it goes into the origin of the character. And origins can feel, like, unnecessary sometimes. But it's an aspect of the character that really isn't considered or um, held up for uh, consideration in previous takes in the character. And that's what made it like so fascinating, the, this, this Joker movie, is that it tries to give like this full picture of where the character's like, murderous impulses and insanity comes from. Um, for me, that was, <clears throat> yeah, that was something, I don't know if I was entirely attracted to that prospect at the beginning. Because again, I really like the fact that we don't know where he came from. We don't know how he came about. We only know the bare, the bare, the basics about him. You know, he fell into a vat. He doesn't like Batman. Um, this movie, just by virtue of being, well, a prequel, you know, that that 
put me on a little bit on guard because mm-hmm. I think there's a tendency in these kinds of films to overexplain, to overexplain uh, where popular characters come from, where um, uh, what their motivations are, or or there's also a tendency to shrink the world of these characters, wherein 20 years ago everybody knew everybody, you know, before they oh. actually met each other. You know, yeah. everybody is connected to everybody. I mean, come on, Anakin built C-3PO. I mean, how small is the universe? That that kind of like that kind of surreal thing they do in prequels, where everybody's like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Exactly. And for me, I mean, as a moviegoer, I don't need to know the life story of the shark from Jaws for it to be scary. In fact, I think not knowing where that shark came from—that's what makes it scary. You know. And with the Joker, I thought going in that the more I know about him the less terrifying he's going to be because he's going to be demystified. He's just going to be, oh, he's got a tragic backstory. Well, tell you what, he actually does have a tragic backstory in this film. Boy, is it tragic, but it worked for me. It was done very well. It was presented in a way where you can see how circumstances mount and where his, um, well, quote-unquote madness comes from. I really enjoyed getting a look into his head that prior Batman films just didn't do because you know the focus is always on the guy with the cape yeah and i guess for me that comes the way the manner in which i differ from you i guess and by differ i use like big air quotes here is that i guess i knew going into this film that even if i'm not 100 like a fan of origins i have to meet the film on its own terms mm-hmm. so if the movie tells me this is going to be a joker origin story it's not my place to critique its validity as an origin movie, but say, but just take it as it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I thought what elevated the film was how much attention to detail and craftsmanship and like in, in terms of themes and story ideas mm-hmm, mm-hmm. was present in the film. Like, for example, um, I thought it was very interesting how uh, Arthur Fleck, the titular Joker, how he had interesting relationships with various prominent characters in the right, film. Like, right. uh, like, you know, there's this, there's this whole like angle that they have where his mother really reveres Thomas Wayne. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they, so, you know, he looks at Thomas Wayne differently or interestingly in that, in that regard. He definitely has another relationship going on with this comedian uh, Murray Franklin, played right. by Robert De Niro, who mm-hmm. is basically a, com- a comedian who has become so successful that he's turned into an, a late-night talk show host. Yeah, well, um, the story of the movie goes that Arthur Fleck is this um, low-rent clown for hire, and he's played by Joaquin Phoenix. He lives alone with his mom. You know, they're, they're not well-off. They live in this tiny little apartment in the bad part of town with like a million steps to climb to get up there. And um, basically, their only source of comfort in their miserable life is watching Murray Franklin on late night TV. So um, I think that says a lot about the state also, not just of um, the haves and the have-nots. I mean, because Thomas Wayne is in the picture. But also, it talks about the state of celebrity, or of idol worship that we have, that we inculcate. And that's something that the movie touches on, actually. In There's a bit there where um, Murray Franklin, Robert De Niro's character, actually responds to something that Fleck says. He tells him that, you don't know who I am. And that whole moment, you know, it just opens up this um, whole can of worms about how people think that they own celebrities. 
I mean, stop me if I'm wrong. No, that's I, I, I'm glad you brought it up because it's one of the most like compelling. Like, I talked about this uh, a couple of days ago with you. Yeah, I, it had me on the edge of my seat when he said that, and the fact that we don't get any definitive answers of where he's from or you know, like or or what he's seen, mm-hmm. it just made the whole like the whole remark more tantalizing to mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. It says that the character of Murray Franklin, like, there's there's more to him than just being. Uh, a figure like there's a tendency in when we write characters or when we make movies or tell stories that um, some characters are are are, are they're, they're just like props. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, here's the, here's the thing. Like um, I was very fascinated by the fact that Arthur Fleck like has a relationship with this young woman uh, who lives in the same apartment as he and his mother. Right, right, and she. Um, but for all, for all intents and purposes, without really spoiling anything, is that she's not really a character. Mm-hmm. You know, what I mean, like you don't really get a sense of what she believes, what she does. No, you don't she's get a just sense. The, she's just the woman next door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and that's a thing. And you know, you can. That's a thing that happens in movies. Some characters don't graduate to full characters because it's not relevant or not necessary to the film. Mm-hmm. But in this case, yeah, Robert De Niro gave that little side character more life and more of an interesting feel or placement in the story than you would have expected because you expect you know he's a, he's just he's just a supporting character but yeah. i think that that's the rationale of getting someone like robert de niro to play him because yeah. you expect Joaquin phoenix to be amazing right yeah he's he's been great in everything i've um you know i mean i i first became aware of him in gladiator in 2000 he was just a complete jerk of an emperor in that one. Yeah, as, uh, as, as Commodus, right? The right, man, Yeah, right. the man who uh, like basically gives uh, Russell Crowe a hard time. Absolutely. Before stabbing him in the gut. But, um, spoilers for a 16-year-old movie, everybody. 19. 2000? Spoilers for a 19-year-old movie, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, Joaquin Phoenix just owns this movie. I mean, he is the Joker. And I think um, in casting somebody as big as Robert De Niro in a potentially smaller role, um, that says a lot about the commitment to fully fleshing out this world. Yeah, because like uh, we talk, um, the thing is like there's a little bit of a cinematic intertextuality going on here. Is that you know I, I think some critics have discussed this. I don't know. I don't really follow like all, all, all mm-hmm. the all the write ups about this. But basically, Joker the Joker the movie is sort of like a knowing reference to films of the 1970s which have like you know angry men you know uh living in a world living in an urban environment that is oppressive or subject to economic uh despair oh yeah this movie has more in common with um you know with scorsese works like like taxi driver or even the king of comedy yeah and that's Um, what i wanted to get at that has more in common with those movies than let's say uh batman returns or even the dark knight because like the dark knight was a crime film through and through but this one this is a character study and that's what makes it fascinating to me that's also another thing that robert de niro brings to the table he brings that history um as somebody that you know who's been through stuff in those kinds of movies and to see him here as a character who's made it to the big time he has every right to be mad at Arthur Fleck for assuming that he knows what kind of person he is it's so it's almost like and this is a little bit of a cliche here it's almost like there's a symbolic passing of the torch going on here kind of because in the king of comedy he was a struggling comic like Arthur in this movie is portrayed to be 
he was a struggling comic and there was somebody that he looked up to. And um, in this case, there's a little bit of that um, before. Um, even the names, even the names like sort of reference each other. Like so in Joker, his character's name is Murray Franklin. And mm-hmm. in Kings of Comedy, he plays a struggling, you know, barely funny comedian named Rupert Pupkin. Right, right. Rupert Pupkin, Murray Franklin, you know. It's, it's, I don't know. It's, that is kind of a stretch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, like just, just the fact there's a, that it's too. Four syllables and a kin at the end is close enough, you know. Okay. It has to be deliberate without being too on the nose. But um, let's talk a little bit about the controversy behind the film. Because there are people who have been saying that this movie is going to incite violence in everyone who watches it. And did, um, what, what's your take? Well, as I've said before, you can't… One can express reservations about, you know, a film like this, which you know, uh, centers around a man who is disturbed, who feels like wronged somehow and is driven to violence and talk about how this might have a negative influence on people who receive that movie, uh, who receive it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's another thing entirely to draw a direct line from movies to actual violence. And I think something we spoke about before is that even if someone were to commit an act of violence at a Joker movie screening or around the time that this film is mm-hmm. you know, in theaters, right? Uh, that person would have probably wanted to like inflict harm on someone, you know, with, without the movie. I think, you know? regardless of whatever they watched on that yeah. particular day, they probably would have had it in them to begin with. I mean, I'm not an expert in mental health, and I apologize if I'm offending anybody, honestly. <laughs> but I, you know, I mean, I watched, you know, years of. Um, Let's say ducktails. Come on. I mean, I'm not a quadrillionaire who swims through, you know, my money bin, you know, or, you know, you don't watch um, things like, um, I don't know, um, Law and Order. I mean, I don't, and you don't watch shows like that and then suddenly walk away with a working knowledge of the American legal system. I mean, these are things that you have to, I don't want to say aspire to, but these are things that you have to consciously want. These are things that you have to go in with. And if it's something that you want to do, then it doesn't matter what you're watching. You're going to do it anyway. Yeah. I mean, like the thing is the, you know, uh, someone who's done a lot of work, uh, work uh, writing about media effects uh, in psychology, it's already been debunked for a long time. The, dire- the supposed direct line between violent media and mm-hmm. violent actions. Right. Um, this is not to suggest that violent media does not have any effect at all. Like definitely it gives, how should I say this? It reinforces ideas that are already there mm-hmm. to some degree. But in, if anything, the one thing that I'm more concerned about with the film Joker is how, like any other movie, it can reinforce and codify certain ideas that might not be right, might not be appropriate. For example, I think Arthur Fleck's Descent into Madness is well-documented, mm-hmm. but I was it definitely gave me pause for concern when he's getting ready to to embark on a life of violence and he declares like, oh, you know, I'm off my medication now. Ah, yes. And I'm like, okay, um, while it's true that medication can help many, you know, mentally struggling individuals uh, to deal with uh, the, the problems that they have, I think it's a mistake to suggest that taking them off them, leading to like abnormal or deviant or violent behavior is not a good look. That's fair. That's fair. 
And as far as painting um, people with mental health issues in a negative light, I can see where that would be a cause for concern. Mm -mm. But as for inciting people to actual violence, to the point that they've had to apparently beef up security in some locations in the States, they've had to ban Joker cosplayers from attending screenings. Oh, yikes. Really? (laughs) I'm not even kidding. And they actually banned cast interviews at the Hollywood premiere the other day because they just we're sick of having to answer these questions about whether or not the film will incite people to, you know, go on a mass shooting. This is this is like when they ask female actresses, you know, how do you balance, like, you know, how do you do work-life balance? And stuff? Yeah, yeah. How do how do you have it all? <laughs> how do you have it all? Yeah. No, you're like, and it's it's funny to me because uh, I think a couple of days or was it last night? Somebody said, "Oh, the Joker Hollywood premiere went off without a hitch." Yep. yep. No one, no one brought a gun there, mm-hmm. and you know. Uh, shot up some people and while I'm glad that happened and I'm glad the it's, fact that they had to be called out that, that's kind of scary well it, it's, it's it's reassuring to know that that wasn't a thing going, that's going to happen but at the same time I'm also like for all these talk all these conversations about angry angry incel you know like you know the angry white male culture supposedly mm-hmm. like floating around there um and they're worried that these kinds of people are going to shoot up a joker screening right and, and right. I'm like First of all, those people don't target, you know, they don't, they don't, they don't target screenings in Hollywood premieres. They target WalMarts and synagogues and mosques. I'm not even going to claim to understand what goes on in the minds of that kind of person. But as far as I'm concerned, you know, over the course of three movies, John Wick killed like, I don't know, two, three hundred (laughs) people. And he made it look a whole lot cooler than this movie does. So if there's anyone who should be put on notice, you know, I mean, it should be the purveyors of that kind of violence, maybe. Those films actually go out of their way to make violence look cool. This one does not. And that's something that I actually appreciated. This one, um, this one does not in any way make excuses for its lead character. It doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't glorify the Joker. It doesn't make him out to be some kind of a misunderstood saint. Mm-mm. He's still a crazy, um, for lack of a better word, he's still murderous. Yeah. He's still, um, he basically, there is something definitely wrong with this guy. And the film takes great pains to show us that, but it doesn't do it in a sympathetic light. Yeah. Uh, you know, all, all of this is in the eye of the beholder, so to speak, or the eye of the viewer. Like if somebody, Walks away from that film thinking that the Joker is someone to to aspire towards, or to a hero, or whatever. Yeah. That's their that's their problem, and not the movies necessarily. That's true. That's true. Because if we're going to be censoring every possible little thing that could be offensive, then you know I don't think there'd be anything left to watch or to listen to or to. I mean, I'm not saying that it's impossible to make media that doesn't offend, but I'm saying that. With a character of this type who is inherently unstable, I think you kind of know what you're getting into when you go in. Mm, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the fact that it's R16 here in in the Philippines, um, that that's um, that's a that's a big old keep out sign to all you know <laughs> to all uh, all the little children who are hoping to see the next big comic book movie. Parents everywhere, please pay attention to the age rating labels on your popular entertainment. You know, if it says R16, not for anyone under 16. And if you're picking up a video game that says M for mature, it ain't for anyone for under the 17 year old range. You sound like those announcements at the beginning of movies. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, dude. Mm. 
well, lahat ng mga no, lahat ng mga miners disappear. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, moving on? Yeah, so there's still a few more weeks for Joker to run its course through the theaters, but I I think it's safe to say that the commercial and critical success of this film is kind of a foregone conclusion. I think so. Because of the controversy that's going on, I think people will check it out of sheer morbid curiosity. At worst. Yeah. yeah. And for my part, I genuinely enjoyed it. So Mm -hmm. I actually think that um, I won't be the only one. I I think this movie is going to make a lot of money and it's going to get… Yeah, I actually think there could be awards in this thing's future. Mm, Yeah. um, I Like like if I was a betting man, I'd say not… Not necessarily any nomination for Best Picture or Best Screenplay, but I think we're looking at, you know, we're looking at a, a Best Actor nomination for for Joaquin Phoenix. Oh, absolutely. Do I think he deserves it? Deserve it? Does he? Do I think he deserves it? Not necessarily. Do I think he kind of like maybe blew his wad a little bit in some scenes? Sure, but it doesn't. You know, change the fact that I think it was a virtuosic performance from him Absolutely. overall, and I think moving forward, what this means for the DC universe, or the, not universe, but rather the DC uh, brand of, of of movies of motion pictures, could be really interesting uh, and might have interesting implications. Like, what do you think, Misha? Like, what does this mean if if that now that Joker is quite possibly going to be a success and what that holds for the future of those movies. Well, for my part, um, the, the cool thing about it is that it sets up a couple of things. So it could go any number of directions. But from the very beginning, Todd Phillips, the director, has maintained that it's not necessarily a part of the bigger um, DC Extended Universe as it exists. And I think part of expressing that was setting it in the 1970s, right? Because mm. the 1970s, what you said earlier, it helps to set that kind of a tone, that kind of a mood for a grittier kind of storytelling than we're generally used to from um, these kinds of comic book movies. Because even even if Zack Snyder went dark and brooding with his movies, right? They weren't necessarily gritty. They were still glossy on some level. Yeah, They were, they were still all about the, 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 the big money shot and the big special effects. And the big action scenes. This one is about the nitty gritty of what would actually drive a man insane. This is something that we genuinely haven't really seen in this genre before. And um, I think that whatever direction they decide to go from this point, I would be very interested in seeing it. Because we all know that they're making a new Batman film with um, Twilight Guy. With oh, Robert, Robert Pattinson. And, and uh, I'm sorry. And maybe in, in a year's time, I won't be calling him Twilight Guy anymore. He might impress us. We don't know. I think, I think that's the point. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, everybody will tell you that. Everybody with, uh, who's been following Pattinson's career, the few of them, uh, will tell you that he's actually done a lot to sort of like display his thespic range. Right. And, you know, we can, we can talk all the live long day about how great he was in this movie or that movie. But these aren't necessarily star-making turns or career-defining moments. Right. And if his turn as Batman is successful, that's when the label of Twilight Guy will fully <laughs> will fully fade away, I'd right, say. Right. I'd, I'd hazard. I think he's been doing a pretty decent job in trying to distance himself from that role because, I mean, even uh, depending who you ask, he wasn't entirely happy with how that played out or the attention that it engendered. But you, the, impre- um, the impression I get is that he's very candid about what that character or what that role meant. The a paycheck? Of it. Yeah, exactly. 
And rather than try, rather than try to, because what many other actors would do is yeah. they would like after a few years start shit talking, right? Start start, right. start you know, this guy mouth. from the very beginning, he made no bones about it. Yeah, and so and instead focus on what truly matters, which mm. is like not necessarily distancing himself from her Twilight character, but more like uh, focusing on the future and forging right, a, new, right. a new professional direction. But as far as like… Not a little off topic, I think. That's all good. But as far as connecting this film to the greater universe at large, I mean, assuming that he's going to play a different kind of Batman um, than, let's say, what Ben Affleck was trying to do, was trying to do, or never got to do, depending who you ask. I, I I don't know. I I mean, I am fascinated to see where this Joker goes in terms of being a bat villain. But given Joaquin Phoenix's age and the setting of the film, he would be around I don't know sixty years old by the time Batman is old enough to punch him in the face. <laughs> and that movie would still have to be set in the nineties to be anywhere near you know where this film is set. But you know that's the cool thing about it uh, about Joker is that they can do literally anything they want with it at this point. And um, I'm actually looking forward to seeing that. Um, something that's interesting is um, starting with um, Shazam and um, and this film. Um, they've said, Warner Brothers um, has said that the films aren't necessarily interconnected anymore. Mm-hmm. Which I think um, is a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing in that they won't be forced to um, make everything line up. I mean, I think that's part of the problem of what happened with Justice League in that they, it, was, it was too much and too fast because they really wanted to get their interconnected universe going. Yeah. It was very, uh, it was um, like, I, I wouldn't call it a mistake, but it's a very inorganic approach the way they handled it. Actually, I don't think that, I don't think that um, it would have been necessarily bad, to be perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. Um, putting a whole team together in a first movie and introducing it um, them as such, because that that's what like Guardians of the Galaxy did. Yeah, it's, and, it's not impossible. I mean, yeah, hell, it's not we, impossible. We've seen we've seen television shows where like the cast is seven characters, right? And you meet them in forty minutes. You meet them in forty minutes, and. Technically, only two or three of them are really leads, right, right? But they use future installments or future episodes or future mm-hmm. like, like to storytelling moment opportunities right. to build on the rest of the cast, and that that could have been a thing that like an ideal version of the Justice League or any other like ensemble film would have been that would have been like you know here's your pivotal characters and everybody else is just kind of there. Mm-hmm. That's fair, but yeah, so. As um, if you ask me, honestly, um, as much as I would love to see Joaquin Phoenix as the Joker going toe to toe with Batman, Superman, the rest of the Justice League, or any of those guys, I don't feel that he necessarily has to. But it would be fun to see. It really would be um, if they were able to do that. In fact, the next Wonder Woman is set in 1984, so who knows what could happen, right? Yeah, yeah. Honestly, what I'm interested in finding out is whether the Joker. And maybe even Birds of Prey, The Emancipation of One Harley Quinn, I believe is the full title. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whether they will establish a creative blueprint of future films that are isolated or exist within their own unique eras. Like, who knows? Maybe we'll see a Riddler movie set in the 1980s. Or maybe we'll see uh, an an Atom movie set in the 90s or something. Like, that kind of thing. Like, will that be a... Rather than having individual films that aspire towards a coherent continuity just create individual films to the best of their ability and 
worry about whether or not there'll ever be a chance to link them together later. I think that's fair because to be perfectly honest, I think that this one being set in the 70s and doing its own thing and not having any other super characters and having that plausible deniability that there are even any other super characters Mm -mm. at all, um, that opens the door to a lot more different kinds of stories that they could tell. In fact, um, as far as telling different kinds of stories goes, I think that this blows the, the lid wide open on what they can do who they can feature and how they can feature them. Because as much as we love the interconnected universe format of, say, the Marvel films, it kind of handcuffs you um, in a way with regards to the stories that you can tell. It's like, um, and you can see that even in some of the Marvel movies and the Absolutely. Marvel shows. It's yeah. like, how are they getting away with this when that guy has Thor's number on his cell phone, right? I mean, how, how did Winter Soldier happen when... You know, Cap could just call the Avengers to back him up. But this one with Joker, it shows us that you can have a good, successful comic book movie that doesn't necessarily rely on callbacks, connections, or even setups for sequels. You can have a good standalone film that does its own thing in its own way, and it still comes off brilliantly. I I think that's a, uh, that's a, that's a, that's a note to end on. Okay, so that was um, that was our first episode of um, Three Point Landing. Big shout out to the folks at Big Baby Studios. Thank you for having us. Um, hopefully, this is the first of many, many episodes. I'm Misha. I'm Matthew. And uh, tune in next time for Three Point Landing, where we talk about more geeky stuff. I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs>